This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. I'd like to introduce everybody to uh, Professor Duncan Maskell, the Vice-Chancellor of uh, the University of Melbourne. Um, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning, Duncan. Uh, what do you want to tell people about yourself and your career? Okay. Starting when? <laughs> I was, uh... How did you get to be where you are? And did you expect to get, get to where you are when you were, say, 19? So I, I was born uh, in Barnet in North London um in 1961 uh which was a great year for bordeaux uh claret red wine by the way uh so it's a good a good birth year um but anyway uh i was my dad was a plumber uh my mum worked um uh, originally she worked as what was called a, a audio typist um uh, but then she she had to take time off to have children because in those days that's what happened and she went, eventually went back to work as worked in a factory uh so we came from pretty uh, humble uh, background in a way. I wouldn't say we were we were terribly poor like a lot of people, but we were we were not well off. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but my mum and dad and my family had a very strong belief that um, uh, you should make the most of yourself, uh, and also that the way to do that was largely through initially at least through education and hard work. So those values were instilled in me from a very early age. Uh, in a supportive environment, incidentally, it wasn't it wasn't um, you know whipping you to, to get on, but it was uh, it was just saying if you want to make something of yourself and we think you should, here's a way to do it. Uh, so um, I, I I took education you know pretty seriously, but I also took having fun pretty seriously, um, and um, I eventually after you know at the age of eighteen uh, got into university and I was the first in family to go to university, uh, and I I went to the University of Cambridge. Um, which was uh, incredible, uh, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I mean, in those days, going to university at all was was a minority activity. <laughs> you know, we didn't have the sort of massification of higher education that we have now. Uh, and uh, and getting into Cambridge was really, you know, very uh, a rare event. So I was incredibly uh, lucky and pleased about that. Went to Cambridge, took about um, two terms. Uh, we have three terms there rather than two semesters as we have here. And I took about two terms getting used to the idea that I was there. One of my tutors took me aside and said, you know what, I think you're a pretty uh, smart guy, but you're going to fail at this place unless you do some work. So that brought me up short. Um, and um, I, uh, I did start a knuckle down and got more out of the place, actually, by doing that. But I, 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 so I had a fantastic time there. It taught me so many different things. Uh, and the age of 19, I was in my second year at Cambridge. Um, I had a bit of a, a, a bit of a moment, you might say, during that year where I, I convinced myself I was going to fail my exams at the end of the year. And uh, um, I have, a, I don't know what you'd call it these days, but uh, um, I, 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 I guess these days I would have gone to the support services and said I've got a mental health problem. Mm -hmm. But um, in those days, that didn't really, didn't really pertain. So um, I had to deal with that myself got through it 
and uh, then entered my final year, third year in Cambridge as an undergrad, and had a fantastic year. I, fantastic because I, I, for the first time we were doing a research project, and I re that really clicked with me. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, so I stayed on and did a PhD. Uh, so I, I spent a further three years in Cambridge doing a PhD, a very special PhD because it was in uh, a scheme that was running in those days with industry. Uh, so I, I was doing a full-on basic science Cambridge PhD, but also working for a period of time with the Wellcome Research Laboratories in South London, um, which was great to get the exposure to both sides of the game in a sense. And I guess that instilled in me from, from day one, the, 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 I've, I've never, there are, there, are, there are some colleagues, a few colleagues who are a little bit snobbish about industry, I have to say, um, really foolish because there are so many really smart people in industry. Uh, they're just doing a different aspect of what we're all trying to achieve with our, with our, with our studies, um, trying to find out about the universe, but also then trying to make that work in terms of improving society. And I, that's a real touchstone for me in terms of why we do this job. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I retained my lucky uh, streak and, and got a couple of good jobs. Eventually wound up as a lecturer in Imperial College in London and then went to Cambridge I was 35 years old uh, as a professor. I was the youngest professor in the, in the place at the time. Um, and then, then I sort of jokingly say that an embryo came along and got a professor in mathematics and that sort of became the youngest professor in the place. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, um, uh, and I stayed there for 22 years. And then uh, the offer uh, to, to apply for the job here at University of Melbourne came up and I, I grasped the chance with both hands uh, uh, with great enthusiasm. And I've luckily got, got the job to be appointed to the job. And it's, it's just, it's fantastic to be in Australia. It's fantastic to be at this amazing university. Um, and I, I'm very pleased and proud to have done the job. Now, you and I share something in common. We both barrack for Carlton. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, the weekend was a lot better than the previous two weekends. Sadly, I was at the games for the previous two weekends um, uh, and couldn't make it to the West Coast, but... Uh, no, it's uh, it's great. Footy is great. I used to, I used to, people don't believe me, but I used to seriously. I used to watch footy uh, back in England when I was a kid, right? Uh, because all things Australian were much more prominent in England back in those days. Uh, you know, um, we hadn't ruined the relationship by joining the EU, uh, and um, uh, so footy used to be on the telly for you know half hour sort of highlights thing. And so I've always loved the game actually, and to come here and see the game live has been an absolute joy absolutely fantastic in fact i've got a sharing on my on my on my shelf up there <laughs> so look i um invited you to bring an object that represented your um your uh approach to learning and your experience so i'm really looking forward to uh your revealing it to me and to the audience that will be watching this so what what did you bring i brought this thing that's something else we have in common. I used to play the clarinet. Right, okay. That's my B-flat clarinet. And I've had this clarinet since I was probably about 13 years old. Right. It's been uh, all over the world with me. Um, uh, it was such an important part of my teenage years growing up. Um, I, 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 got, um, I got grade eight when I was about 16 or something. And uh, my music teacher wanted me to, to go to music college and become a musician. And um, uh, coming from the kind of background I came from, my mum and dad quite wisely said, no, 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 that's far too risky. Uh, go and be a lab technician. You'll have a job for life. Um, it turned out slightly different from that. but So I didn't go and become a musician. But 
in Cambridge, um, one of the first things that um, I did, again, pure serendipity, I, I saw an advert for an audition for a jazz band that was being formed. So I went along and um, got into the band and uh, that started, so I played in a Dixieland jazz band with the, with the clarinet. Uh, and then that, that was a good, we had great fun with that. Uh, uh, and uh, playing semi-pro, you know, we were paid. Um, and then, then eventually we, we went off to the Edinburgh Festival with a, with a show and we mm -hmm. formed the pit orchestra for a show. The show was absolutely terrible, but the band were pretty good. And we got a gig in the uh, Fringe Club in Edinburgh, mm -hmm. 81 or 82 or something. Uh, and we brought that band back to Cambridge and we, we formed a big band. So I've, I've also got a saxophone. I haven't got it here. Mm -hmm. But uh, I used to play tenor sax and clarinet in a, in a, in a big band doing Daisy and Ellington and that sort of stuff. Uh, so it's been a, a fundamental part of my life. I, I then, I then, when I went to Oxford, I, I, I um, as a postdoc, I also played my saxophone in a rock band there. I had hair down here and a big leather jacket, so times change. But uh, um, I, I, um, music's been a fundamental part of my life forever. And uh, playing music for a long time was, was really important to me as a release, um, as an intellectual exercise as well, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, just, just really important, I think, to have that balance. I mean, I, I know in, I've, I've watched one or two of the other interviews you've done and uh, you know, most of the people you, you talk to say that the, the balance is important. And I, I, I really do believe that's really true. You, you get, so I hate it when I'm labeled as a scientist or yeah. a, or, or an administrator, which is even worse. I hate that. Yeah. Still an academic. I'm still publishing papers. Yeah. Uh, you know, but but being a but being an academic and, and, and all those things enable you to 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 think freely and and to do lots of things. You don't just have to be a scientist. In fact, most scientists I know are fundamentally creatives. Uh, to dream up new hypotheses, to dream up ways of testing those hypotheses is is uh, you know it's a creative act. Uh, and so therefore, many, many scientists I know, uh, in fact, many of them are musicians. Those who aren't are very much into the arts in different, you know, other different ways, um, as am I. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it's an important part of, of, of life. So in terms of performance... I'll put it down there, otherwise I'll stop. Being, being, a, being a musician, it's about performance, it's about creativity. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's also about having passion for, for your craft, for want of a better word. So have you been able to transfer that and translate that, those sort of values and those, um, those ideas into your leadership and into your, your role as a teacher in a university and as a learner? I hope so. Um, I certainly, I'm aware of it. Mm -hmm. you know? um, I also think it's being a musician, certainly being a, a, a sort of trying to be a, a good enough musician to play out professionally or semi-professionally is a lot about discipline. Yes. Um, you know, so the only way you can play freely in a jazz band is if you're disciplined enough to learn the basics. You know, uh, I often say to people, you know, learn all of your scales and all of your arpeggios, and then you can improvise. If you if you if you if you don't have that basic technique, then you, you're you're going to be not very good. You know, and so I think that transfers also into what we do. Uh, there's got to be a there's got to be a I'm a great believer in trying to do things to the best possible level you can, to do things rigorously, to, to challenge oneself to be intellectually rigorous whenever, you, you know, whenever you're faced with a situation. Um, and, and the other thing I think is really important is, is, is that um, it's, not, it's not bad to try your hand at stuff, but if you're, if you're asked to, back, back in the UK when the BSE crisis was on, I, I work in food poisoning and stuff like that, you know, nasty bugs. 
Um, I was asked to comment on BSE and I said, no, I'm not going to do so. That's not my strict field. People who comment on stuff when they don't know much about it, especially publicly, I think are dangerous. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we need to be really pretty rigorous about that as well, actually. You know, I think we, we as academics and intellectuals have a responsibility to comment on stuff that we know about. And if we start to comment on stuff we think we don't know so much about, we should be honest about that and say up front, you've asked me for a commentary on this. I'll tell you what I think, but I'm not an expert, you know. Whereas I think in COVID, for example, just to quote one obvious example, we had a lot of people who, well-meaning people, but who are asked for commentary who maybe didn't know much about this subject. And uh, I think that's pretty dangerous. So you, you, you talked about um, your experience at Cambridge and the sort of uh, um, the different cultural mores that you came to university with and those, the expectations of your peers. And you had, a, you had one particular tutor that really gave you a come to Jesus talk. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience at Cambridge? You also said that you had a good time. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've always, life is for the living, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, we have a, I think we have a responsibility and duty to, to society to do what we can in terms of, you know, if, I, if I've got particular talents in certain areas that I can run this university, then I should do it, uh, if you see what I mean. But it doesn't mean that I shouldn't also enjoy my life. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think that does bring a, a, um, an important balance in, into the equation. And I believe that should be the case for all the people who work here as well. You know, I think that's incredibly important. Um, so when I was in Cambridge, I, I, I did work hard. I worked hard enough to, to get my degree. Uh, but I, I also did play a lot of music. Um, I drank a lot of beer, I have to confess. Um, I played a lot of soccer, um, played a lot of tennis in the summer. Uh, you wouldn't believe it to look at me now, but I used to be reasonably fit. Um, and um, I, in fact, I, I, I learned, I got my referees badge for soccer as well. So I, I, I eventually was the secretary of the referees association in the colleges in Cambridge. Um, and um, I ran, so I ran all the referees for all of the inter-college football matches. I, I refereed the cup final, inter-college cup final a couple of times, which was a highlight. Uh, but I mean, basically what I'm saying is that, that, that I, I did have a broad range of interests. Mm -hmm with friends and, and, and I made the most of the place actually and you know I hope that young people still can what I worry about actually especially in our system here is that too many of our young people um, when they've got their spare time are out working to make the money to to be able to survive while they're doing their degree and I think that's a that becomes a attenuated and a denuded experience of university. So when you think about your postgraduate work as well I mean what what were some of the, those key moments of your professional formation and your formation as a scholar? So I, I, I um, was very lucky in my PhD and that I was supervised by, a, he was called uh, Carlos Ormeche. He was Uruguayan mm -hmm. um, and he'd been in England since the mid seventies uh, when he was kicked out of Uruguay by the dictators. Um, and uh, um, so uh, he, he and his wife, Raquel, were both in the lab. Carlos worked on typhoid fever and Raquel worked on gonorrhea. And I actually wanted to work with Raquel, but I got Carlos uh, as my uh, supervisor. And um, th those two people taught me an enormous amount about the world that I, I in my rather sheltered upbringing in, in North London, had never even thought about. You know, they tell me horror stories about friends of theirs who'd been incarcerated in, in holes in the ground for a year and that sort of stuff. And, you know, uh, Raquel had almost been shot by the military for various reasons, you know, that, I mean, this is real life. 
this helped me enormously. But what they brought to it was, was uh, they taught me about rigor. They taught me about knowing the literature, not, not, just, not just having read the summary of a paper, but actually knowing the literature and being able to quote the literature for the things I was doing. Um, uh, they taught me about being uh, scrupulously honest and rigorous in terms of the science that we were doing. Um, and uh, uh, somebody else in the department, I was in the Department of Pathology in Cambridge, um, very famous immunologist called Alan Munro. He stopped me in the corridor once and, and asked me a question. He said, he said something like, do you know how salmonella infects cells? And I said, well, I think, and he stopped me there and then and said, no, 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 I didn't ask you what you thought. I asked you, do you know? And, and <laughs> that was very formative and it stuck with me forever. You know, you kind of know something or you don't. Yeah. Uh, if it's your field, you better know it. Uh, so, so this is part of the rigorous and, you know, intellectually honest thing that, that I'm very keen on promulgating, you know, let, let's cut the BS and let's actually deal with what we know and mm -hmm. be rigorous about it. Um, so all of that was formative for me. Um, but also the, uh, there was a great camaraderie in the lab. And, and so uh, having brought up in that mode, I struggle with things like workload models and this sort of stuff because, you know, I, I, I would be, I went into the lab on boxing day to clean out mice cages from one of the experiments I was doing, for example, you know, but also there was also, there was give and take and we didn't have to write it down and record it. So if, if, if I was out refereeing a football match on a Wednesday afternoon, that was fine, you know, and, and there was a, just a sort of a trust and a, and a, an understanding of what we were about in those terms. I know times change. I'm not saying that's the right way to do things or anything like that. It's just that was something that that I uh, I liked. I liked that way of working, mm -hmm. and um, I, I sort of didn't. I didn't. I didn't get too fussed about the fact that uh, that I was probably working far too long in hours. It just wasn't like that in those days, you know. Um, but. Uh, so, so it's, it's a combination of understanding how to live your life. It's a combination of understanding there are bigger things out there in the universe that you've got to worry about and think about. And also uh, a, a real, it's not so much a training, but it's an education in the, in the, in the business of, of what knowledge is, in a sense, what, what you know, what you don't know, how to get there, how to interrogate data properly, how to be rigorously honest with yourself about all of those things. So I think I brought, I, I, I try to bring all of that into my job even now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You came from the UK to what is Australia's premier university. What, what were your first observations about leading a complex, large, elite university like Melbourne University? And what, what do you think um, the big challenges are for Melbourne University, but the sector for the next three to five years? So my previous job, immediately before this job, was being number two uh, in charge in Cambridge. So I had some experience of, of leadership of a very big and very complicated organisation already, uh, although I wasn't in the top job, and that is a different experience. Uh, mm -hmm. Everyone knows that, but it's really true. Uh, uh, anything that really got too difficult, I could try and kick up to the Vice-Chancellor in Cambridge, although he was very adept at kicking it back down to me and telling me to get on with it. But, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying. Um, uh, so, uh, I, I think, um, people don't, people outside the system really, they, they sort of know that it's a big and complex organization, but they don't really know just how big and how complex this organization is. It's really complicated. Um, and 
it's made even more complicated by our obligation, and I, it's an obligation I'm very supportive of, to support academic freedom and freedom of expression. Um, other organizations that I've dealt with, uh, companies, you know, if you want to criticize the company, you can, but you better resign first. <laughs> you know, universities are exactly the opposite of that. And good, you know, I'm happy about that. But, but it's, um, it, it makes life even more challenging. Uh, you know, you might be trying to do something really important and really good um, uh, to sort some out, some, something out in the university. Um, and somebody suddenly pops up over there and, and, and says something which is counter that. Uh, and, and, and that can sometimes put a big spanner in the works. And, you know, that can be quite frustrating. Um, but that, you know, that doesn't happen that often. And, and you just got to deal with it. And it, it's part of, the, part of the joy of doing the job in some respects. So I think people in vice chancellor seats have to be, have that mindset, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Um, I, I think the, the interesting, there's been, a, you know, there's a whole range of different things about how universities operate in Australia, which is somewhat different from, 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 from in the UK, obviously. I mean, one of the big differences, of course, is that uh, we are largely a commuter university. So mm -hmm. a lot of the kids live in Melbourne with their parents. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty different to, to, to UK. Some, of course, some, some, some students do that. But even, even in Cambridge, having lived and brought up kids in Cambridge, their friends, one or two of them went to Cambridge, but they still went to the university. They didn't stay at home with mum, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and that, that's an interesting issue for me. Because I think part of the formation of a, of a young person's mind is at the age of 18 or something like that, leaving home, going somewhere else, learning to cope with that sort of thing, with support, of course. But, but uh, uh, you know, that, that's part of the education. It's not just all about downloading the information and, and that sort of stuff. Um, so that's a big difference. Um, I, I think also the related to that, the fact that there's an expectation, really, that a lot of students are going to stay in their local area is 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 kind of a bit of shame really i'd love it if a lot of melbourneian kids went off somewhere else and we could get a lot of kids from around the country to come here i think that would be great for the federation actually yeah. um you know and then we do we get a lot of kids from all over the country but but it's it's not as much as it could be um i think the i'm going to say something radical i guess now um which uh nobody agrees with me about but i'm going to say it I would love it if we could get to a system where the young people, uh, for the young people themselves, education was free. There are countries in the world that do that, big countries, Germany. Um, in some I was educated for nothing. Sorry? I, I, when I did my degrees. Oh, me too. I mean, this is why I feel so passionate about it, actually. Uh, I would not have gone to university in 1979 from my family background if I'd have had to, if they'd have had to, if I'd have had to have taken out a loan. Uh, you know, and I, I would contend that, that although times have changed somewhat in terms of credit, um, I would contend that a lot of uh, the, the more disadvantaged kids are probably coming from the same position, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's just an accounting exercise for government in a sense. The money is the same. It's still it's going to spend the money. And mm -hmm. they'll get the money back at the end of the day because actually, you know what, I've paid for my I had a free education, except I've paid for it many, many times over it, because I've been successful. I get taxed at a high rate. All of that tax has paid for my education millions of times over. So, you know, uh, it's a bit of a, I don't know, smoke and mirrors in some sense and, uh, about that. So I would just love it if we could do that. Uh, I, I know that the current minister is very, very um, uh, clearly uh, passionate about access, as, I, as am I. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that the best way to improve access is, is to re remove financial burden, mm -hmm. or at least one of the big elements of that. 
so yeah, that's one thing that I really think is 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 uh, interesting. Um, I'm also uh, there's a sort of I don't know what the word is exactly, but there there is a I I, I really don't like bureaucracy. <laughs> a vice chancellor saying that, oh my word! But I don't like bureaucracy and I don't like managerialism, <laughs> and I do think that we are we do have a little bit too much of it in the universities here in places maybe a lot of it in some places i don't know uh but, because uh, of regulatory frameworks and yeah i think we're over regulated i mean the amount of compliance we have to do is extraordinary we just had a little uh a quick quick and dirty report on it uh, the other day in the university here and I, I can't remember what it was now but it was a hundred and something pieces of legislation that we have to comply with mm -hmm. yeah this is crazy and it's all about that there's a very low risk attitude Mm -hmm. uh, I think that could be true uh, in the country more generally. I don't know, but uh, you know, and we start to do lots and lots and lots of extra checks and balances just to remove that final 0.5% of risk. And actually, the curve is like this. You know, you've, you've got rid of all of this risk with just yeah. a few instruments, and now you're trying to play around with this asymptotic part of the curve, and it's just pointless. It, it's a great deal of effort for not much return or almost no return. I mean, if we could sort that out, and certainly within my institution, you know, we need to be working on that. Uh, I think that would help enormously. What expectations do you have of the uh, Mary O'Kane report when it when it finally comes out? So that's an interesting uh, framing of that question. Um, my expectation for that is quite high because I, I think Mary and the people on the committee are really good, mm -hmm. and so I'm I, I think I'm, I'm expecting them to come up with something really good. Um, exactly what that is, I, I won't really know, but um, there is quite a consistency coming through in different submissions about certain, uh, you know, certain areas. So what, what in particular would you like to, I mean, the group of eight has a particular um, approach, uh, the, the various other sort of uh, university groups have different expectations as well. What, what do you, when you think broadly of Australia higher education, what do you think is important that comes out of that? First, first of all, um, the University of Melbourne is a, is a very willing and enthusiastic member of the Group of Eight, but the Group of Eight does not talk for the University of Melbourne in all cases. Right? Yeah, so, I, I, I spent 12 years at the University of Sydney. <laughs> you know, uh, and I'm not meaning to be disparaging at all there, but it's just a, an, a, you know, it's an important distinction. Um, so I, the first place to start is I do think that we need to integrate the higher education system across the piece. Uh, I was astonished when I first got here and realised that there was the state controlling TAFEs and, and VET, the federal government. In fact, the university is uh, um, you know, regulated by an act of parliament that is a state act of parliament, and yet it's funded and regulated by the federal government. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is go always going to be a recipe for um, not disaster exactly, but less than perfect efficiency, I would say. Um, so um, if we could find a way uh, to willingly stitch all that together. I think that would be terrific. Um, I think that would then open up a lot of opportunities for um, understanding that there are a lot of people who can benefit from a skills training, but also an education. And I make a distinction between those two things. Mm -hmm. um, take my dad, for example. He was an incredibly smart uh, bloke. Um, um, he went and became an apprentice plumber because he didn't get into the local grammar school as it was then in the UK because he, his family couldn't afford the school uniform, right? But he was smart enough. Uh, he would have been, he would have been brilliant if he could have done his uh, skills training on the tools as in his apprenticeship 
and then had a few units at the University of Melbourne learning about business, let's say, mm -hmm. or something. I don't know. Even something really different and have, have a couple of sessions where he could learn about music or the arts, you know, making rounded people, uh, letting people explore their full poten potential. I think that's what we should be doing. Uh, so, so if we can stitch that together, I think that'd be a, a really great thing. I also think that we need to sort out the financing models for the universities, uh, and that's on two fronts. Number one, um, I've I, I really have uh, been staunch in saying from day one, we need to get rid of job-ready graduates. We mustn't fiddle at the edges with it. It's poor legislation. Um, it doesn't achieve its objectives. And in fact, it devalues some of the most important areas uh, that, that, we, that we need desperately. Uh, I'm talking about the social sciences and the arts. If you, one of the things I've been pushing hard, yeah, we, we, we just had a big initiative on climate change. There will be technological answers to elements of climate change and that kind of thing. The social sciences of all descriptions are just as important in effecting a solution to, to our climate uh, challenge. Uh, you know, how do we help politicians get the policy runway they need to effect these changes? What are the ethics and the law around a lot of these things? Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all, all of those things which, which come into it. So, so, you know, we need to get, we need to get a, a funding system that's fit for purpose in terms of the educational side of things. Um, and and uh, something I'm really strong about is, and I've been saying since I got here again, is, is the full economic costing of research. Uh, we, need, we need to have a, a unified, um, clear-cut, simple system for costing up what it costs us to do research. The idea that the costs of research are the direct costs, and then somehow there's this magical stuff that goes on in the back office which just supports it in some kind of way. I, I think is really it's not it's not good accounting, let alone for anything else. Uh, and so if we get a if we got a model where we understood the full economic cost of research properly, governments could then make choices about whether to spend 100% of it in their granting schemes or whether to tell us oh, we're only going to give you 80%. You've got to find the other 20% or whatever, you know. But 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 some kind of deeper clarity around that issue, I think, is really important. If we did 100% of FEC, uh, that would also, of course, then remove. Um, the incentives that we, not incentives, the requirements on us to, to, to go out and seek other sources of income um, simply to fill the gap. Mm. Uh, and this is where we, you know, we, we go and get a lot of international students and everything else. Uh, international students, incidentally, are fantastic, really important. But, 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 the, but the driver, to, you know, one of the drivers being to fill a financial hole is not great. I'd much rather that we went and got a lot of, loads of fantastic international students because of the benefits they bring to us and we give to them and to the world in fact in terms of educating the world uh so you know that full economic cost of research i think is, is, is incredibly important uh, i think we've got to be very much clearer much much clearer in our commitment to uh to disadvantaged uh, uh students um, um but also and i i don't mean to talk about indigenous people in terms of just disadvantage at all but but we have to have a clear plan for getting many more Indigenous students through uh, higher education. Um, of course, there are loads of really smart kids out there who happen to be Indigenous, and we don't get the right proportion of those kids coming through the universities. So we have to be proactive and quite clear-minded about how we do that. And I think that's an important element of, of how the accord process might, might pan out. Um, there's there's you know, a bunch of other stuff, but the main things for me. I've got two more questions because I'm aware of um, the time commitment that you've, you've promised. One, one is you mentioned about um, students being commuter students and not having that sort of residential experience. If there was one thing and, and that, that students are also having to work 
probably as much as they study. In fact, sometimes they work more than they study. What, what can we do to sort of enhance the student experience so that they, they get that sort of formative, transformative experience that, that they carry with them for the rest of their lives? That's a big question. And, and I mean, we, we've just launched our advancing students uh, uh, an education strategy, which is rolls up student experience as well into that. Uh, student experience is about stuff outside the classroom, but it's also about what happens in the classroom too and how that integrates. Um, one of the first things that I did when I got here was set up a deputy vice chancellor role for student experience. We've stopped doing that now, actually, because we've rolled it up into a different different framing with, a, with where a new provost has been in nearly two years now, you know. Uh, and and um, also, I mean, of course, in Melbourne, um, the student experience took a bit of a hit during the lockdown uh, period, uh, reflected in the quilt scores, you know, uh, and everything else. Uh, so we got some stuff to rebuild there, actually. But I think we have to be, I'm not, I can't give you some off-pat answers to that, but I, what I can say is we need to, the, the new strategy that we, that we wrote, um, Advancing Melbourne, which we launched just before COVID, <laughs> great timing. But um, uh, one of the real big messages in there is that students are at the heart of everything we do. And I think we might have lost focus on that a little bit uh, in this university and in some other research intensive universities. University is not a university without its students. It's a research institute. Yeah. So if we want to be, if we want to retain the title university, we need to take that very seriously. And I know all my colleagues here and in other universities understand that and are working hard to do that. Um, so so uh, now if we frame our existence here as having students at the heart of what we do, we start thinking harder about how we include students, how we provide services for students. Uh, we listen harder to them when they say, look, this service really isn't working. You know, rather than saying, yes, we're hearing that, we're going to make a tweak here and there. We say, no, no, we're going to change it up, you know. To a, to a better quality in, in general. So, so it's, it's things like that that, that that matter. I mean, at the beginning of COVID, we dug, a, we, we, we dug a big hole in the ground and we knocked down a few buildings ready to build our new student precinct. And uh, there was a big decision to be made where I was getting advice that we should put a concrete cap on the hole in the ground uh, because we didn't know what the finances were going to do. And I said, no, we're not, we're going to build it. And we, we did, we spent $210 million actually building our new student precinct. It was great because we built it during COVID when there weren't any students around. Uh, so, um, and then we just opened it a few months ago. It's fantastic. It's a great, it's a great area for, for students to occupy. It's a really nice combination of modern new buildings with some of the old buildings that have been refurbished. Uh, and, 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 you know, all the feedback we're getting is that it's really working out well. And it was that, it's that kind of, I, th I believe it's that kind of uh, focus on students. In other words, I wasn't going to say no. I, I was going to say we've got to build this during COVID. That, that's what we have to spend our money on, actually. That's what we have to spend our money on. Uh, you know, it's student, student centered and student focused stuff. And we have to do that whilst not um, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and, and, and keeping our very, very high research reputation. That's a real challenge, um, but we've got to do both. If we want to be, if we want to be a, a really good and proper university. And um, I, I, I really believe that very strongly. I believe very strongly in the axis between research and teaching as well. Uh, those two things go together. Not, it's not an axis. It's not, it's not a dumbbell with one on either end. They're actually one thing. Uh, and they're just not different aspects of, of that landscape. But we've got to pr keep bringing that together whenever we can. And I think the more we do that, the better the, the, better the experience a student has. They, they, they feel, rather than, rather than having a sort of mundane lecture, <laughs> 
they might be being called in a much more creative way with with um, you know research driven sort of ways of teaching etc uh, etc et so so you know I, 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 all of those things come together in the student experience plus uh, you know providing facilities and providing opportunities for them to express themselves in their societies and their clubs and all those kinds of things obviously that's very important um, I mean there are other things too student welfare is incredibly important for making student experience good during the COVID period, again, we spent a lot of dollars, lots of tens of millions of dollars, actually, on trying to help the students who are here, especially our overseas students who are staying on shore, uh, survive that period. And we're still doing, um, you know, free food um, uh, handouts and that sort of stuff uh, right now. So, you know, all of those things come into it as well. So what advice would you give to aspiring student leaders as they sort of leave university and progress into, you know, the, the social corporate intellectual world whatever i would uh, i think the most important thing actually and i hope that they learn it at university and take it with them is the the freedom to think and express ideas i think that's incredibly important never be told that you can't think that mm -hmm. right never ever accept that uh and and you know push back do it politely and reasonably i think that's another thing that i'm i, I think is is being lost a little um, you know, the idea that the only way to push back is, is in an aggressive kind of black or white kind of way. I, I, I'm a pretty black and white person, incidentally, but, you know, it's, 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 you've got to learn actually how to be respectful. Mm -hmm. You might not respect somebody's position on something, that's fine. But, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to you about it, I'm not going to be rude and offhand and unpleasant with it. You know, you're a human being, and I'm going to be respectful. So there's a there's a big thing there for me that's very important that I hope many of our students learn. Also, I, you know, I was a teenager in, in London when the punk movement was going going around, and um, <laughs> that that I had lots of mates who were punks. I never did the green hair thing myself. I'm glad to say, but you know, uh, but you know, um, disruption is important. Um, uh, I, I think sometimes I surprise some some of my colleagues because I. I one of my fundamental properties is that I, I'm a disruptor, really. Mm -hmm. Probably not a great thing for a vice chancellor to admit, but um, you know, if you, if you, I, I do believe in, in some sense, in constant revolution. Um, does that make me a Trotskyist? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the idea that the idea that we should be challenging knowledge all the time is fundamental to what a university should be about. If, if we challenge, if we challenge the knowledge in a rigorous, intellectually valid way. And the knowledge still stands up that increases the strength of that knowledge base you know so so, so i i am now utterly convinced that the earth is not flat right? <laughs> because i've tested that knowledge in no, lots of different ways and it still stands up to, to all those tests having said that you know newtonian physicists at the turn of uh, late 1800s would have said newtonian physics explains the universe einstein came along and said no mate you're wrong you know, so even things like that can be challenged, and sometimes, sometimes big changes happen when those are those things are challenged. You've got to challenge it in an intellectually rigorous way, and you've got to do it in a in a respectfully minded way. Uh, otherwise, you're just you're just shouting the odds, and that's no good. That's what I, they're the things I would hope that people can take away from universities. And my last question is: What advice would you give to the younger Duncan? Um, as a younger person, be slightly less aggressive and argumentative. Um, uh, um, don't forget to uh, don't get too don't get too um, worried about stuff. 
I used to be a bit of a warrior in my younger days. And I've learned um, over the years, I suppose the only piece of, the only way I'd say I've become wiser is that I don't worry about stuff much anymore. Um, most of the terrible things that could happen are either going to happen or they're not. If they don't, what are you worrying about it for? If they do, you've got to come up with a, with a solution. And then COVID came along. Um, it was a really stressful time, but I didn't really worry unduly because I was confident in my capabilities and the capabilities of my team and the, the vast majority of people in the university here, of course, as well, to, to overcome it. And we did. So, good. Duncan, thank you for a most enjoyable and enlightening um, 40 minutes this morning. And uh, I hope that we uh, cross paths again at the Universities of Australia Vice Chancellor's Dinner. Or, or even something more exciting than that. <laughs> you mean football? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Thanks very much for inviting me, Judith. Visit studiosity.com slash studentsfirst for the next Students First Symposium. An open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education. <laughs>